So if you're brand new with us, um, we're doing something a little bit different um, two, the last two weeks and today and then two weeks from now. And that is we are re-going through uh, kind of a crystallization of who we want to be as a church, what we're going to pray towards, work towards, strive towards as, uh, as a church. And um, we introduced two weeks ago kind of these four parts of who we wish to be. It's kind of a, if you want to use the word vision, um, this is what we pray the Holy Spirit will do in our church. And um, spells life, just, again, word association, right? Um, to be fearless worshipers of, of Christ, um, to be educated and, and, and growing, to be an intentional community that is intentionally loving each other and then, of course, reaching out into our community. Those are the four parts. This morning, we're going to consider this education and growth part. So, um, and we're going to do it through 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. So if you have your Bible, turn there. And again, if this is your first time, normally we go through a book of the Bible. Um, this is a little bit outside in the ordinary, but I, I pray maybe even this will minister to you um, as you see um, how important this issue is for not just our church, but for your life. Um, and that we would embrace it as a value. Let's uh, pause and let's pray again and ask for the Spirit's help. Holy Father, we, we come before you once again and we pray because we need your help. Um, as, as smart as we may be and as well-intended as we may be, um, we can do nothing apart from the grace of Christ. Um, we can't change our hearts. We can't change our attitudes without, um, without your working in us, working in our will and, and lifting our eyes back up towards you um, from where all, all of our true help comes from. Uh, Lord, truly, our, our breath is yours. The hearts that are beating in our chest are yours. We're here because you are good. And so I ask in the name of Christ that you would speak, meet, provide for, move in the hearts of those you have drawn here. And if anyone is here and they don't know you, they really don't have a relationship with you, they just know you from a distance or by way of just acknowledgement, I, I pray that you would break through that and, and you would make yourself real to them, that they would realize that not only do you exist, but you're here, and that you have created us for a relationship with you, and for worship of you, and to commune with you, and that's what we pray for this morning. Help me as I deliver this, Lord. I pray that this would be um, something that would be God-honoring, Christ-honoring, and um, helpful to your people in Christ's name. Amen. Well, listen, um, I, I do read tend to read a lot um, in what I do, and, and most of what I read is, is uh, somehow connected to the Bible or spirituality or Christianity and stuff like that. But, but there is another genre that I do like to read that's outside of that, and it typically has to do with uh, warfare or battles, that kind of stuff. Now, I don't know what that says about me, but I just, I remember years ago, as I was on this, um, this Civil War kick, and, and especially the Eastern theater part of it, and I, I'd read pretty much anything I could get my hands on. Um, and just the whole era just was awesome. Read a little bit about World War II, um, and now I've just been more immersed in what's taking place in Iraq. And in particular, I've been reading about um, the battle, I should call them battles, of Fallujah. Have you heard of the name Fallujah? Um, if not, you will. It'll be one of those battles that'll mark in history. Um, they called it, or some have termed it, the, the bloodiest battle in our war in Iraq. And the reason for that is, and I put myself there and I realized, man, this is a tough go, is that our guys went into this city that was heavily entrenched by the insurgents or these terrorists, 
And they had to go street by street, block by block, door to door, house to house, room to room, to root these guys out. Now that, and oftentimes when they would come into a room, it was hard to tell who the bad guys and who the good guys were. And if you got the wrong guy, well, of course, you'd be front page news and, and America would get a black eye. Um, the amazing thing about the battle, of course, is that, that, that we succeeded. Like, we actually uprooted the terrorists from that town. And the reason for that, apart from God's good providence, the reason for the success or the victory was because our guys were well-equipped, but more importantly, our guys were well-trained. And I say, more importantly, our guys were well-trained because we actually then gave the city over to the Iraqi army that was um, uh, aligned with us. We gave them equipment, and they lost it, which meant we had to go back in again in the second Battle of Fallujah to retake what the Iraqi army had lost. It just tells us that equipment isn't everything. Actually, more importantly is the training, that our guys are well-trained. Um, they've spent years and years training for battle. Um, they know what they're doing. They're instructed. And um, in my reading, I'm just astounded at how, how awesome our, our United States uh, military is. When I think about one of the great um, functions or mandates or responsibilities of God's church, I think it is to instruct and train and educate its people as deeply as it can because the New Testament describes the context in which we live, whether we see it or not, as one of spiritual warfare. Um, Jesus told us, that, listen, if they hated me, they'll hate you. It's just a matter of fact. Depending on how one interprets um, the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, where there's massive war between the dragon and this woman, which are symbols of God's people and, and Satan himself, I understand as being a present tense reality, well, we are at war. I'm at war with deception, at war with seduction, at war in some places around the planet with persecution, that the church has always been at war, meaning we need to be well-trained. We need to be instructed. We need to be educated because we are at war. Or in the words of Paul, many of you know this, um, just as a reminder of the context, demanding that we be a church that well trains people. He says, for we wrestle, um, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And by the way, the Crusades did not get this verse right. We're not at war with people of a different religion. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that is humanity, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. Get that? The whole armor of God. We have to be ready for this, prepared for this, trained for this, to stand firm. Now, some people have likened the church to a hospital where people who are broken come in and they hear the gospel, they, they experience the gospel through the gifts and love of others, and then they start to heal. And in one sense, it's true. The church, that's not to be confused with the building, but the church community is to be a place of, of healing where God begins the work of transformation and changing our hearts and helping us accept his forgiveness and start offering forgiveness to one another and finding joy that's beyond our circumstances. I mean, all of that has to do with healing. 
So in one sense, I would like to say, yes, the church is supposed to be a hospital where, where people come and are healed. But in another sense, the church should be a place where spiritual soldiers are formed. I mean, that, that, that those words are used in the New Testament. And Paul, in this book, 2 Timothy, he tells him, be, be like a soldier. Or the armor of God in, in, in Exodus, or Exodus, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6. That is, we ought to be preparing people to fight the fight of faith. Not fight against people, but actually fight the fight of faith for people and on behalf of people, lost or of other religions. We are we're fighting the fight of faith in order to see people liberated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that, that's what we're supposed to be doing, which means, in a sense, we're supposed to be an assault force, right? Um, we are supposed to be an assault force in our city to bring light and to bring love and to bring um, liberation to those who are enslaved to their own addictions, to their own um, deceitful desires. That's, that's our part, which means we have to, again, be trained. We have to be educated. We have to be instructed. What we're talking about here, basically, if I was to sum it up in a single word, is this, is, is discipleship. Discipleship. It's a word used in all four Gospels and in the book of Acts, and strangely enough, not after that, which I'll come back to in a second. We're, what we're doing is, is attempting to, by the grace of God and by the working of the Spirit, through the word and gospel and the gifts, as we are endeavoring to um, train disciples. A disciple, a very simple definition um, from the original, is a learner. When you become a disciple, you say, I, I want to learn. In ancient times, if you were a disciple of Socrates or Plato or Aristophanes, well, you were somebody who would willingly submit yourself both to the life direction and the teachings of that particular person. And that is, that, that is the kind of the definition, working definition of what a disciple is, is someone who's, who willingly submits to the teaching and way of his or her master. Now, when Jesus tells us to make disciples, that's what he has in mind, um, people who are Followers, people who submit themselves willingly to his life, to his authority, and to his teaching or instruction. That word is a lot bigger than simply making converts. Jesus didn't command us to go and make converts of the world. He actually called us to make disciples, people who were willingly submitting themselves to his authority and to his teachings and to his work. In other words, according to the definition itself, someone who says, I'm a non-practicing Christian is a contradiction of terms. A Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is one who is yielded to the teaching and to the authority of Jesus. And that, that comes in one of the most amazing, comes to light, in one of the most well-known verses in Matthew. You know, the, the Great Commission, as it's uh, termed. When he says, make disciples, that's the single command in this text. Of all nations, baptizing them, and baptism is just the rite of initiation. It's your way of saying, listen, I have entered the pool of disciples. I'm a follower of Jesus. I have died to the old way and I'm alive to the new way. That's the initiation rite of a disciple. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. And this is the learning part. That is, there's to be this education piece that's happening to those people who have been baptized or brought in. They're to be trained. They're to be instructed with the purpose of them observing, that is, submitting their life to the master, um, to all that I have commanded you. So here you have this idea of Jesus being su supreme master and the job of making disciples is the job of teaching them to submit to his lordship and authority and to the work of the cross and the resurrection. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. But what does it look like? 
how are we actually supposed to do this discipleship, which is um, to train and to educate and instruct God's people to be like Jesus and to be submitted to Jesus? Here, I'd like to take you to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Um, these verses have been formative for me. That means that as I think about the church and what the church is to do, these have placed, uh, played a, a huge part in, in my thinking. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. <coughs> now, before I read this, if you're saying, I don't know anything about 1 Timothy uh, or 2 Timothy. Are they two guys with the same name, just, just have to differentiate Timothy 1 and Timothy 2? No. Um, this was, uh, um, Timothy was an apprentice of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And um, he was someone that Paul plugged into, and he wrote these two letters, near the, at least this one, at the end of, near the end of his life. Um, this is kind of the final word, if you will, of a disciple, a discipler to a disciple, a mentor to his apprentice. Now, since it's one of the final books that the Apostle Paul wrote, you can expect that what's really on his mind and what's really important is going to be contained in this final word to his apprentice um, as to how to run the church. And he left Timothy, the person he's writing to, in charge of the church of Ephesus. And, and he's, he's instructing him, these are kind of my final will and testament to you. Um, this is what you need to do in church. This is important. So you get a sense of, 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 of um, if you're to have like the top five things uh, if Paul was to you know, talk about the top five things that he wanted to see happen in the church, you'd expect them to be here. Um, and the whole idea of discipleship, though it doesn't go by that name, is found here. He writes to Timothy, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You then, my child. Timothy is not Paul's literal physical son, biological son. He's a child in the faith. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As I said, this has been a formative couple verses for me as a pastor as to what we're supposed to be doing as a church in particular with regards to education and training. I'm going to make four observations from this, um, these two verses, kind of gather some other verses in as to um, what discipleship looks like. Because we kind of have a unique dynamic um, in this text. On the one hand, we have, we can see how Paul relates to his apprentice. And at the same time, we can see explicit instructions as to what that apprentice is then to do with the information he's been given. So, in light of that, again, four observations with regards to discipleship. And, and let me just tell you ahead of time, everybody has a part to play in this. This isn't just for pastors and church leaders. Everybody in here has a part to play in this. First observation is the discipleship slash training is a relational work. It is a relational work. Notice how the, 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 the uh, master uh, refers to his apprentice. He says, you then, my child. Um, that is a statement of endearment. Um, it implies that Paul knows Timothy. He has knowledge of him personally. He's related to him. He probably led him to Christ, and therefore he has a huge vested interest in him. And that is, is one of the things, if you want to get down to the real nitty-gritty of what discipleship looks like, it looks like someone getting to know somebody else well enough that they actually have both the trust and the discernment to speak into their lives. Um, 
they have both the trust and the discernment to speak into their lives. In a sermon like this, we have to keep application somewhat general because everybody's in a different place. But when you're life on life or you're person to person and someone who's older in the faith comes along someone who's younger in the faith and they develop a, a relationship where they know each other and there's trust built and there's an understanding of flaws and weaknesses, well, then you can begin to push the gospel in very particular ways into a person's life. Uh, that, that's, what, that's what Paul is, is doing here. And you get the sense he actually knows Timothy because he, he addresses particular weaknesses of him through his letters. He knows Timothy is timid. And so as a result, he's like, fan the flames that were given to you. Um, don't let that gift that you have um, give way to timidity. So he kind of gets in his, up in his business, if you will, and say, hey, you need to do something about this. He addresses him regarding youthful lust. That is, he, you get the sense that this guy actually, Paul, actually knows Timothy is able to speak to him in very practical and particular ways. And that is huge, a huge part of discipleship. Um, one of the major disciplers in my life is my father. Um, I am blessed to have a good Christian father who is both an example to me and through informal conversation constantly talked to me about the Lord. And he knew me. He knew my weaknesses. And I remember calling him. I was my senior year, last semester, and I called my dad because I was completely overwhelmed by all the classes I had to take. I had to take 23 units to graduate. And I called him hoping that he'd say, ah, no big deal. Just drop a few, come back next year, which, of course, would have meant yeah, another 10 grand or so in tuition. But he knew me well enough to know my aptitude and also knew that I could be prone to laziness. And so my dad did what he thought he should do, knowing who it was. And he said, in, in my words, he says, suck it up and just take them. And I said, my dad wouldn't say suck it up and do it, but that, that was my understanding. When I heard him say what he said, it's like, suck it up. Okay, dad, you know me. And I appreciate the fact that both I trusted his word and he knew me well enough to speak into my life. And that, brothers and sisters, is something that's massively needed, not just at Parkway, but it's needed all the way across the board in Christian circles. Is people to have life connections with people where trust is built and where knowledge of um, nuances of a person's life, flaws of a person's life, strengths of a person's life, so you can actually speak Christ in a very practical way into someone's life. Um, Paul would later say is that, you know, it's the older supposed to, um, and who's probably thinking of age, but I think of it more in terms of faith, is people who are older in the faith connecting with people who are younger in the faith and passing down the wisdom they've gained through the years of taking the gospel and living it out in practical ways. Um, and as I said, that, that, that's massively needed, especially in our culture where um, relationships continue to fray and fragment and people move all over the place for jobs and military and so forth and to make those connections that are meaningful so that you actually have someone when you find yourself struggling in your marriage to go, listen, this is what's happening with me and my wife. Help me, as someone who's been married for 30 years, understand how I'm supposed to, to do this in a Christ-like way. And to have someone that you could go to to actually then transmit and help disciple and instruct you on how to be a Christian man in the context of a, um, of, of a, of a married life or parenting or, or anything else. Like, those connections have to be made. Now, how do you make those connections? It's hard. It's not easy. I suppose we could rely on technology. We've thought about this before. You know how they have eHarmony where, you know, you put in all your stuff and then it somehow connects you up with somebody who has a lot of stuff like your stuff and then you realize their stuff is so similar that now you can start to date and if that works out, well, then, you know, you go on and get married. I have had two people that I've married who have met that way. Most people don't meet that way, but some do. 
So we could create an e-discipleship.com. You could put in all your stuff. This is I like hiking. I like mountain climbing. Oh, I love the book of Ephesians. Oh, we find somebody else who's older in the faith who also likes mountain climbing, also likes hiking, also likes the book of Ephesians. Let's match them up, and boom, discipleship on a one-on-one happens. You know, listen, they didn't have the Internet in the first century. They actually took the time to get to know each other. And in that getting to know each other, praying for those connections and seeking out those connections. That is what I'm saying is relying upon the spirit and then also creating within a church body the culture that says this is important. So if you're a person who's been in the faith for a while, start praying and looking and saying, how can I transmit what I've come to know as a result of being a Christian to someone who could use it? And someone who knows they're younger in the faith, like, I need some help here, starting to pray and looking for somebody who's older in the faith that you connect with and trusting that the Spirit of God actually is going to answer prayer. There's an idea. Make that connection, and all of a sudden these discipleship strands are starting to connect. That's that everybody is, 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 is capable of this and, and should be a part of this. It's, it's relational in, 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 in its work. Now, having said that, now, this first point, by the way, is longer than the rest of them. It's very short. But this one was really important. Having said that, one does not have to know somebody personally in order to impart wisdom or be a part of their discipleship. There is a spirit connection between people that can happen even if they don't know each other. Um, and the reason I say that is because some people... Um, when they think of discipleship, they define it as something very narrow and small as one person meeting with one person. And if that's not happening, then discipleship's not happening. And let me just say that does not square with the New Testament or experience or mathematics. Jesus and his 12 disciples were told that the picture that arises in the New Testament is that Peter was kind of his right-hand guy, number one plugged into him probably more than the rest. Then there was Peter, James, and John, what they call the inner circle, a a slightly larger group that he would plug into. He took them on trips that he didn't take the other nine with. Then there was a larger circle of disciples, nine, that he plugged into at some level. Of course, Judas blew it, so there was actually eight. Um, But then we're told in, in Luke chapter 10 that there were 72 disciples. Now, do you think Jesus met with them every day and plugged into them personally and got to know every single flaw and or strength and incursion? That didn't happen. And yet they were still his disciples. Then there were larger units in which Jesus preached and taught and probably didn't even know the names of people. And nevertheless, discipleship was still happening because they were hearing the truth from Jesus, whom they were connected to by way of spirit, and they were responding and growing. That, that too, what I'm saying is these, these, these outer rings of, of exposure to people's gifts and so forth, is part of discipleship. Don't minimize that or be so narrow-minded that you think that, the, that all of that isn't included. Um, listen, some of the guys I've been discipled by and just did my father are dead. I never met them. Inspired by, the, by the, um, the self-sacrifice of Ignatius of Antioch in the first century. Inspired me, helped me. Um, reading about the sacrifice and the courage of Dietrich Bonhoeffer massively helped and developed my life. Going back and reading the books of, of Luther, some of them, I just impact you with his, his, his joy that he experienced in, in discovering justification by faith alone. I mean, A.W. Tozer and his vision of God. I never met the guy. He's dead. 
But the Spirit knew him, and the Spirit used his work in my life to help disciple me. So in one sense, I want to say, of course, it's relational. But the relationship can go broader than simply having to know the person personally, okay? Does that make, that make sense? If it doesn't, um, well, listen to this online again, maybe. <laughs> two, two and three are going to go fast. Second, with regards to discipleship that I see here, is disciple um, training, discipleship training is a grace work. I mean, he says before he ever gets to what he's supposed to do, he says, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The work that he has called us to in, in discipling um, is not a work we can do in and of ourselves. And, and I know most of us know this at least in theory, but maybe not in practice. Um, I think what that means um, in my own thinking is that we humble ourselves um, at the outset of the day or through the day saying, listen, Lord, I know that apart from you I could do nothing. Apart from me abiding in the vine, I can do nothing. But at the same time, recognizing, this is where the courage comes from, recognizing that by, by way of the cross and by way of the resurrection and because God has granted his spirit to me, I am therefore completely equipped to carry out my calling and gifting, not on the basis of my power, but his. Now, strengthening yourself in the grace of God, knowing I can do it because he is with me. So this, this work is something that is, is, is a, a grace work. And then what that, that should do is um, encourage those of us who may feel like, you know what, I can't do that. I can't pass on anything. I've never been to college. I've, I, you know, I, I, I don't know my whole Bible. I can't recite all the names of all the books. It's okay. The Spirit, if, if, if you're a believer, you, you, you have the Spirit in you. And you know what? God has been working in your heart, and you do have something to give to somebody else. You do. In fact, interesting note, and I made reference to it. The word disciple, discipleship, or disciple in the verbal form in the original Greek, it does not occur after the book of Acts. Think about that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uses the word disciple um, and the book of Acts. But after that, never used. And I think there's a reason for that. Because the picture that discipleship creates is of one discipling many. But it disappears. In all of the writings of Paul, you'll never see the word disciple. You won't find it in the, the writings of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. You won't find it in Hebrews. You won't find it in the epistles of Peter. You won't find it in John, and you won't find it in the book of Revelation. Why? Because after the departure of Jesus, I think the responsibility of discipleship fell upon the whole church, not the one. Interesting. It's all of our responsibility to plug into each other um, with regards to use of our talents, gifts, and strengths, and our experiences. It's a grace work. Third, disciple training is to be a self-replicating work. Uh, think about how many times the baton passes in this text, um, one's implied. When he says, you, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's, a, there, there, there's five different, uh, maybe four baton passes, but five figures in the baton passing. Obviously, Paul got what he got from Jesus. 
He tells us that in Galatians. That what I've received, I received as a result of revelation from Christ. So what Jesus gave Paul, Paul then gave to Timothy. And what Timothy is instructed to do here is give it to other men. And then those other men are supposed to be equipped well enough that they can actually start to equip the other men. So there's like five different passes. That's how the church was designed to replicate itself. That our job as believers is to see that in some way, shape, or form, your life is replicated in the life of another person. Like cells that divide in your body, there is supposed to uh, be a division of cells or a division of discipleship in which um, you um, entrust, you work, you invest in another person as such that you are actually able to see Christ formed in them as a result of your relationship. So that they then can go on and do it to the next generation. And, And that's how it's supposed to happen over and over and over again. It's how the church thrives. It's how the church um, endures is this self-replicating work. That ought to be our goal, is not just to invest in one person. You have to invest in, in a person um, with the aim of them being able to feel confident and equipped to actually do the same to somebody else. It's self-replicating work. And four, this is the last one. And this gets down to the real heart of the matter. Because you go back up to verse 2 and read, and what you have heard from me, that word what refers to something. It refers to a content. It refers to a subject matter that has to be passed from one generation to another. And that, that, that what or that subject matter is the gospel itself. That is, discipleship training is at its heart a gospel-infusing work. I drink tea. That's why I like the word infuse, you know. It means permeate. You fill it. We want to fill people's lives with the gospel in a way that um, transmits or communicates both content and helps them practice. It's, It's not just the knowledge of the gospel or faith in the knowledge of the gospel, but also the practice of the gospel. And those two are inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. Or as some people have said, orthodoxy, which is right thinking or right believing, must be wedded to or connected to forever and ever orthopraxy, which is the right practice of the gospel. On the one side, you have this idea of a content. An orthodox, that's an old word I know, um, a message that maintains its integrity On the one hand, a collection of truths and doctrines which must be imparted. And on the other hand, uh, proper living that flows out of it. You can tell or see Paul's concern for the the integrity of the content all the way through his instructions to Timothy in book one and in book two. Here are just a a couple of, of, just so you see that he's really concerned that we pass on to the next generation proper thinking about Christ and his work. He summarizes his gospel in chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. He also summarizes it again in chapter 2. But here you have just kind of in a condensed way, this is the subject matter that we have to make sure we protect and we entrust to other men. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, uh, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And here is the gospel, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. And not because of our works, 
Now he's implying justification and grace. But because God, of, God, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, in other words, destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Right there, just kind of summing it up, it's like it's about what God has been doing from the foundation of the earth. The gospel was planned long before Adam and Eve were ever born. And all through the ages, God was just waiting to say, um, just wait. I'm going to show you just how awesome it is. At the appearing of my son, I'm going to destroy death, and I'm going to give you life and immortality to my people. That's the gospel, and it's, it's one that's accomplished by grace, not your own works. Like, so he summarizes his gospel right here. There's, there's a lot more to it, but this is kind of a summary. And he wants this so badly to, to be maintained and transmitted to the next generation in its integrity. So a couple verses later, he says, follow the pattern, or another word would be, a translation would be outline, or shape, or sketch of the sound words that you have heard from me. In other words, follow it, follow the pattern, follow the orthodoxy, follow the integrity of what I passed on to you. Chapter 3, verse 14, again, he's just communicating the importance of transmitting with integrity the content of truth about Jesus. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Don't let go of it. Hold on to it. Knowing from whom you learned it, that is, you learned it from me, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's talking about the Old Testament, which you are um, able to make, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Like immerse yourself in this truth. Let, don't let go of this truth. Protect this truth. Entrust this truth. Transmit this truth. As opposed to allowing it to be distorted, or allow peripheral things to become substantive things or trivial things to become crucial things. And 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 that he he warns them of over and over. Avoid those useless controversies that just stir up questions and don't help people. You know, questions like. Well, I wonder what date Jesus is going to come back. And then an argument ensues. Like, listen, he told us we're not going to know, so stop talking about it. All right, there was actually a discussion one time in a theology class um, as to whether or not Eve was black. I'd say African-American, but there were no such thing as African-Americans in Eden, so dark skin, let's just say. A big discussion over, well, how do we have the races unless one of them is a different color? And I'm just, again, who really cares? Those are what you consider extraneous things that don't even really deserve to be talked about, that is, discipleship focuses on the main thing, keeps the core thing the core thing, the essential thing the essential thing. It keeps Christ at the center in grace and justification and life and resurrection and hope at the center. And that's what we need more than anything, and that's what makes our hearts aflame with the joy of Christ. But I, that's, that's kind of the orthodoxy content part. Then there's this life part, this practice part, as you know, Paul is equally concerned that we actually practice it. That's why his letters are constructed the way they are. You know, Romans 1 through 11 talks about the content of the gospel. Beginning in chapter 12, it talks about our response to and or the practice of the gospel. The book of Ephesians, you know, the first three chapters are given to the content of this amazing mystery that's been revealed. And then beginning in chapter 4, he talks us how to live out that mystery as Christians in very practical ways in our marriages, in our parenting, in our life. Um, he's equally concerned that we practice what we know. And there is really no growing unless you do practice it. Um, you can tell this from his own statements to Timothy. Same book when he says, you, however, have followed my teaching. That's the content. But also my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. 
Listen, how do you grow in love for your wife? Well, on the one hand, you do need to study what love is like, that we are to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that's the knowledge part. But then we grow when we actually start to do that with our wives. When we actually start to deny ourselves what we think we're owed and give them what they need. That, that, then, then you know what? Maybe it's hard the first time, but the next time it gets easier because love grows, patience grows, righteousness grows as it is practiced. We're not practicing it. You can't expect to grow. You can study weightlifting all you want. Until you lift some weights, the muscles ain't going to grow. You know what I'm saying? Just So, church, listen, I know it's sometimes hard to practice the gospel, but again, I remind you, this is a grace work. Um, and to encourage our people that we know around us, not just to know the gospel, but to practice the gospel and help them in, in, in ways that, um, that will allow them to grow as disciples. So here you have kind of these four observations. You know, the, the discipleship, this training that's so essentially needed in church um, is by nature relational. Um, it's a grace work. It is, it is a, a work that is centered on the gospel, and it is a work that's supposed to be self-replicating. Now, let me end this with a, with a challenge um, to all of us in here. Actually, it's kind of a three-part challenge. One, um, if I could challenge those of you who actually have a, a gift of teaching. Uh, maybe you're not a um, five-star teacher, but you know you have the gift of teaching. I can tell you that um, our children need teaching, our adults need teaching, our junior hires need teaching, and I would encourage you, because a big part of this is impartation of truth, to, to not sit on the bench, but get involved and to utilize that gift. Um, I was amazed the other day just to think, I did a survey in my head of how many people we have in this congregation who are ex-pastors or former pastors, I should say, um, or who have graduate level training in theology and ministry, and we have a lot. And one of the areas where we have great need is to see our adults continue to um, know and own and be able to defend the truth, be able to understand their Bibles, the center of their Bibles, the story of the Bibles, who we are as a church, who we are as individuals. Um, love to see um, all of that in place. And part of that, not the whole thing, but a part of that is people exercising their teaching gifts. So if you have that, and especially if you have the education, just step on up. Um, second challenge. As I said, everyone in here has something to give to somebody else. And I'm going to ask this question not to produce guilt, just to get you to think. Do you have a Timothy in your life? If you're, you've been in the faith for a while, do you have somebody that you're able to invest in? If you're younger in the faith, do you have a, a Paul in your life, someone who you trust, someone who's knowledgeable, who can plug into your life? And then if you don't, again, don't feel guilty about it. Just start praying. Lord, you've, you've been gracious to me. Show me how I can invest and help somebody else on a kind of individual basis using your, even if you don't know how to teach. Not, not everybody has a gift of teaching, but everybody can teach. You know that? Um, a lot of what is taught is caught. A lot of what is taught is somebody showing up at a doorstep and serving. That teaches. Um, someone who shows mercy um, 
out of the blue, God teaches. And so just, again, encourage all of us to be plugging into somebody and praying about those connections to be made. Listen, church, um, I'll, I'll finish with this. Um, this is important to me, and not just because I'm a pastor. It's important to me because of what I was missing when I grew up. As I said, I'm deeply grateful for my father and his investment in my life. But when I went off to college, and I started taking classes like apologetics and biblical interpretation and an overview of the Old Testament and New Testament, I asked myself, and I felt, honestly, a bit upset. Why didn't I get this in my church? Why wasn't the church a place that took seriously my formation as a Christian young man to invest in me so that when I go out into the world, I actually know what I believe and I'm able to articulate and be courageous in it? And because of that experience, I know my heart has been, and I just want to see it continue. And I pray you just share the value of, listen, we're at war. Um, we need people who are well-trained, instructed, and educated, discipled at the deepest levels so that, so that we will not be what um, a former church was to me. It's important, folks. It's biblical. It's right here. And I hope if you're here and you're like a newer believer, you just say, yes, you know, I want to be trained. And when those avenues come open, when there's a class offered or, uh, or something else, or somebody says, hey, you want to come under my wing? I'd love to meet with you for coffee once a week. I hope you'll take, um, take that as a, a sign from the Lord that you're supposed to engage in this. Amen. Well, we get to come back to the center. Um, at the center of all of these things, worship. At the center of education at the center of outreach, at the center of, uh, of community life is one thing, and that is the cross of Jesus, reminding us that it is in his blood and his blood alone that we're forgiven and that we're freed, and that this is what makes us one. And so after I pray, if I could have those who are serving communion come forward, um, this is our time to come back to the center, back to the very source of what trains us and molds us and forms us, and that is Christ and his work. Um, there's gluten-free bread in the center aisle only. So if you have those um, allergies or troubles with food, then come to the central aisle. And um, again, this is a time for worship. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we would just ask you kindly to um, not partake. This is a family affair. Father, I thank you for, um, again, your cross. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for the truth that you've given to us by which... We may not only grow in you, but we might find ourselves secured, steadfast, immovable, deeply rooted. Lord, I pray for Parkway Church. I, I pray for this family. Um, I do pray you'd make us fearless worshipers of Christ. I also pray that you would help us to make those connections and we would see people um, deeply, deeply um, discipled in the truth and in practice. We commit this time to you and ask, Holy Spirit, that you would um, continue to do your work in our church. In his name.